Doug Fullington, for those of you who don't know me. And I usually give these talks, but the last one I gave was in February of 20 for Cinderella. So it's been a while. I have done these podcasts from my home office, which felt extremely detached. <laughs> sort of watching rehearsal videos on the screen and trying to pull together a semblance of what these pieces are about or what's behind them. Uh, so, well, tonight we'll talk about the three pieces on the program, but I really want to welcome your questions anytime, and you may well have questions. I mean, it's been so long since we've been here. It's been uh, an amazing and kind of bizarre road for the company next door in uh, working, just staying in shape and trying to create new works that aren't going to be seen live, that are just going to be filmed, and now finally back on stage and able to perform for a live audience. It's incredibly meaningful for the company, and I assume for you too, to be able to come and we're together, and we're able to hear live music and see movement to it, which even though we're, there's a lot of constraints, we're all wearing masks and we're not seated as close, but there is a, a, a sort of liberation, I think, of seeing, seeing people move and that vicarious kind of participation that we have. So, so that's exciting. I was at dress rehearsal last night, and it was, it was wonderful to see the company. So anyway, long story short, let's talk about each of these ballets. But please, ask questions at any time, and I'll try and answer them. And, and full disclosure, I have not been working full-time at PMB since a year ago, September. Uh, so I'm not Peter Bowles' assistant at this time. I'm, I'm still doing the lectures and involved in that way. I've been doing a, doing a kind of drive-through PhD at the University of Washington, which has been very kind to me in music history, I'm writing a book about 19th century ballet, which you're not going to see tonight on stage. We're seeing much more recent works. Anyway, more about that later. We open with Dancing on the Front Porch of Heaven by Ulysses Dove, which you may well have seen. It's been in the repertory for 15 years. It came in Peter's second season, 2006-2007. Peter is a real champion of the work of Ulysses Dove, and Ulysses didn't leave a lot of work, a big body of work, but we've done four of his pieces here. Red Angels we've seen the most of, just the quartet in the red unitards. We saw that last year. It's performed to the solo electric violin score. Dancing on the Front Porch of Heaven is for six dancers, three women, three men, and we see them in different configurations. It was a piece that was created in 1993 for Royal Swedish Ballet, which seems a little bit odd because Ulysses Dubs really did the bulk of his work here in the U.S., but he was commissioned by Royal Swedish, so off he went and he created this work. It really is a work about memory, memory of friends that Ulysses lost, it, is a, it has a sadness to it and a melancholy. It is a work about, about memory, presents the dancers, almost like angels, almost like visions of people that Ulysses may have remembered. I don't want to put words into his mouth that aren't there, but I think this is an overriding feel of this ballet. There is a melancholy. I don't think it's inappropriate at this point right now that we see this work. It's set to a score by Arvo Paert. Arvo Paert is a very famous Estonian composer. I think he celebrated his 80th birthday or thereabouts this year. He writes in a very specific style that's considered to have a lot of spirituality to it. Uh, he writes music that has a great sense of contemplation to it. 
the particular piece that we'll hear tonight was composed in 1977. It was in memory of the British composer Benjamin Britten. So the piece itself was a sort of memorial work to uh, a wonderful composer. Um, it has just a sort of cascading feel of strings and also a chime that plays, which I don't know if that imparts a sort of religiosity or spirituality to it, but it certain, certainly creates a sense of ceremony to it. Um, Ulysses likes the piece so much that we hear it three times complete, three times. It's only about a six or seven minute work, but it's played three times and it's, uh, he uses that chime as a sort of interlude between each, each time we hear the piece played by the string particularly between second and third time, there's a long interlude of just the bell sort of tolling before the strings start again. And as I said, we see the dancers in all kinds of different configurations. They're wearing white, uh, white uh, unitards, and they're under a kind of, I forget if it's stalactites or stalagmites, which the ones that come down from above. The mites go up, the tights go down. The tights go down, so they're like stalactites. It's almost as if we're in this sort of ice cavern in a way, but it gives a kind of distant look, but a sense of some kind of locale, a, a sort of otherworldly feel to it. And uh, the dancers come together in a group in the middle. It's kind of wonderful in this sort of circle. And there's almost a, there's a repeated sort of set of steps that they do that almost has a ritualistic feel to it. And at the, at the beginning or between each of these playing of the Arvo Parrot piece. And then they separate out and they either... Sometimes they're in duets, but in the first section, even the three women, one at a time, sort of have an interaction with one man. Uh, and then the second time around, it's two men that have a duet. And then the third time around, we see the various dancers. So they have a, a different relationships, almost as if they've encountered each other at different times, like you might encounter someone in your life. They might be part of your life for a particular period of time, and then maybe not. But you still have that memory of them. And I think this piece is really about memory. It's about remembering people that have been in Ulysses Dove's life. Now, this piece didn't have its U.S. premiere until 1996 at a, uh, at a performance call for The Love of Dove, which is a celebration of Ulysses Dove's life. And so it didn't premiere here till, till that particular occasion. And then 10 years later, Peter brought it for uh, Pacific Northwest Ballet. And it's been in our repertory periodically since that time, and I know it holds a great deal of meaning for Peter as a real champion of Ulysses Stubbs' work. So that's our first piece. Each of these pieces runs just about a little over 20 minutes. I think uh, this one's the longest at about 24, and then I believe we have an intermission. Then we come back for... Right. Yes, yes. You're still casting she in the program tonight. Do you know offhand who's dancing this part? I do, because I did this QR code thing upstairs, and it's on my phone. And I should know anyway, because I was here last night. My eyes are terrible, but here we go. Okay, so um, Cecilia Ilesu, uh, Amanda Morgan and Leslie Rausch, uh, Christopher Dariano, James Kirby Rogers, James is new to the company this year, and Dylan Wald. So those are the six. And we have like two and a half casts performing over the next three days. So they're getting a lot of people out on stage which often happens with these repertory works that have been in the rep a while. Um, a lot of dancers want to be able to perform them, and so they get, the casting is, is done so as many opportunities can be had as, as possible. I will leave this open so I can refer. I'm not reading social media. 
problems. Okay, ghost variations is next. This is by Jessica Lang, and this is really interesting because ghost variations was the first piece that was made during this sort of COVID period. Uh, Jessica and her um, husband Kanji came to PMB in August of 20. They were the first people to travel here. All kinds of protocols. I mean, it just you're just sort of wearing all kinds of gear, and you're in the studio with taped off spaces, and everybody has to stay in their square, and, and um, you know, it's, it's very fraught and a lot of anxiety, but Jessica was willing, she came, the dancers were so grateful to uh, have something to work on, and something to uh, put their energy toward, and uh, something that they could make use of what they were trying to do in class still, whether it was at home or with a few people in the studio. So this was the first work that was made, and it was filmed, and it was shown last year as part of the digital season, and now it's, it's performed live on stage, which is so wonderful. When it was being filmed, the dancers were really separated. You know, they didn't really see each other or have a sense of the whole ballet. It was filmed in pieces, and some people would show up here, and then later on more people would show up, so there were as few people as possible in the building and in the stage area. So it worked, but it was really detached. I mean, as an audience, we benefited because we saw the whole thing, but the dancers didn't. And now they can. If they perform it, if they come off stage, they can stay in the wing and watch what happens while they're off stage. They have a sense of continuity here. Um, so many things to say about this piece. I guess the music first. These are piano solo pieces by Robert Schumann and Clara Schumann. These are mid-19th century solo piano works. Uh, Robert and Clara were married. Uh, Jessica's written a great note. She sent me these notes last uh, fall when the ballet was about to go. Uh, it's a poignant story. These are some of the last works that Robert Schumann died before he was, uh, he was uh, committed to an asylum for insanity. And I don't know, I don't know a lot about Schumann, um, and I don't know all the, the what happened there, but uh, Claire was very protective of these pieces. They weren't published until the 20th century, I believe. Jessica chose uh, some of these. It's a, what it is is a theme and variations. It's sort of a ghost theme. The idea was that Schumann felt that composers were coming to him from the grave and, and dictating these pieces to him, although he had already written this theme. Uh, and then he wrote variations. So Jessica chose some of those, but also interspersed them with some pieces by Clara Schumann. So it really sort of... Uh, there's a real element of the relationship of these two people in this choice of music, which I think is neat. Christina Siemens is the pianist. You'll be able to see her. She's on a raised platform in the pit. Plays them beautifully. The piece itself also has, I think, a, a sense of memory to it. Different from Dancing on the Front Porch of Heaven. But it's still a sort of uh, almost colorless feel, a black and white. The, the dancers wear, in a sense... Uh, Costumes that are, in one sense, quite traditional, almost have a 19th century look. The women are in sort of romantic era tutus, tulle that comes down beyond the knee, a little bit lower. But the, the top of the costume is a little bit more contemporary. And likewise, the men are in pants, but the top of what they wear, which is open, has a more contemporary feel. So there's a little bit of timelessness here, a little present meets past, if you will. I think that adds to this sense of memory. Jessica also uses in her choreography a lot of shadow work. Dancers either behind the back scram or lit from the front in such a way that their shadows show 
on the scrim. So maybe that's the ghost aspect of this, but definitely when we watch the dancers on stage, we're seeing the physical dancers that we can really see, but we also see a shadow movement, whether it's the movement of the dancer we're watching projected on that scrim or a dancer behind who has their own choreography. But there's definitely an interplay there of what we see and what we don't see. It's quite, it sounds clever, but it's actually, I think, quite beautiful. It also filmed really well. It's quite lovely on the film, and I think that they've, they've uh, manifested it for live theater well, too. Uh, and structurally, this is a series of uh, duets, of solos, and just, uh, I think it's the kind of piece that we can kind of overlay our own sense of feeling onto this as we watch. It's not telling us a, a definite story, but definitely the, um, the feel of the music and the choreography coming together and the dancers responding to the music, I think, elicit a lot of emotions for us. But there is that overriding, I think, sense of memory here, um, especially with the, with the shadows. So I know that sounds a little bit vague, but I think as you watch it, you'll see it's one of these pieces that you can kind of bring yourself to and take away a number of things from. I think pieces like this have a lasting quality because of that, that aspect. Uh, lovely music and really uh, beautiful design. And Jessica's style um, incorporates, uh, I think, a very smooth uh, sort of join between classical ballet and a, and a more of what we might call a freer upper body. I think in 19th century, the upper body was freer than we think today, but that's an aside. But there's a lot of beautiful movement in the upper body that's wedded to a more sort of academic use of the lower body that's, I think, quite beautiful. It also complements that the costumes, which have that sort of old and new feel to them as well. Um, I also just admire Jessica Lang. She, um, she's also incredibly organized. She came here last summer, just ready for sort of any eventuality. There are a lot of rules in place, sometimes they changed, and it affected what she was able to do in the studio. And she really was malleable and willing and giving. And I think uh, she's back here this week for Tech Week, and I think the dancers are so appreciative of her, and really able to show that now in a way that they couldn't when things were much tighter you know, a year plus ago. So it's, it's a little bit of a homecoming here for this cast and for Jessica and these dancers. If you follow Jessica, you also know she does a lot of work with American Ballet Theater. Uh, she gets a lot of commissions from them. She's just really, uh, she's really an active choreographer doing a lot. I did an interview with her. Oh, time is so hard to remember now. Maybe it was two plus, two and a half years ago. And I was very impressed in talking about her history that she always said yes to projects. I found that very inspiring, and I tried to apply that to myself. Whenever she was asked to do something, even if it was a little outside of what she was comfortable doing or something she hadn't done before, she said, yes, I'll do it. I'll do it. And I just admire that, and I think that it's really helped grow her career. She has a large repertory of works, and I think that we, we benefit from that here as well. Uh, this is our third work by Jessica. We have The Calling, you know, the, the small solo with the dancer that's dancing to the medieval uh, vocal music. Then we have uh, Her Door to the Sky, the Georgia O'Keeffe-inspired piece to the Benjamin Britten uh, Symphony for Strings, and now we have Ghost Variations. So we, we, we have a growing repertory here from a choreographer who's really active and really, I think, producing uh, beautiful, evocative, and thoughtful material. 
Tsurasek. We have a second intermission. Then we come back for a work uh, that is new to PMB by a choreographer also new to PMB. This is the work, The Personal Element. It's choreographed by Alonzo King. Now, Alonzo King runs Alonzo King Lines Ballet, which is a very highly regarded uh, in, on the global stage contemporary ballet company that is based in San Francisco. Uh, Lines Ballet is, uh, draws incredible dancers to uh, a very, uh, I think, wonderful contemporary ballet repertory. They tour, they tour Europe. They're very popular. Uh, we have not had a work in the repertory by Alonzo King yet, so this is a first for us. And it's quite a new work. Um, as, and it's new to me, and that's why I'm kind of looking at my page here, because I want to get the, the facts right. Uh, this work was not made just for Alonzo King's company. It was a it was commissioned by the Vail International Dance Festival. This is a festival that's given every summer in Vail. PMBs performed there several times. It's a great festival. It's just a little bit challenging because you're at about 9,000 feet. It's hard to hard to breathe normally there for the dancers. So it's always a, you know it's a lot of effort, but it's also a fun and wonderful experience. They have this sort of outdoor amphitheater, and uh, anyway, it's a very inspiring and exciting uh, festival that's given every year. So this was a, uh, a commission from the festival for Alonzo King to create a ballet that involved four dancers, I believe, from his own company and four dancers from New York City Ballet. So it gave an opportunity for dancers from different companies to work together. And I think that's something, an opportunity dancers really covet. They really enjoy that. It's unusual. A festival situation can give you that opportunity for this kind of collaboration to happen. So it did. And this was just two years ago. This was in 2019. Um, the music is by, to make sure I get his name right, Jason Moran, am I correct? Yeah. Who's a jazz pianist who's collaborated quite a bit, from what I understand, with Alonzo King. Um, the music didn't come to us in a sort of, you know, musically set form. Apparently we were given a, uh, a tape uh, that was sort of considered the optimal performance that the composer really liked. I think there's a lot of improvisatory quality here. And one of our percussionists, Gunnar Folsom, transcribed that by listening to create this score that Josh Archibald uh, Cypher will perform tonight. So I just think that's a great in-house triumph for music. I love that when we transcribe pieces and are able to reproduce them and perform them live. So that's wonderful. So we're getting that. All of the feeling of the music and that sort of improvisatory, spontaneous quality even though it's now codified on the page, I think you can still perform it with that sort of feel. So I'm excited about that. I heard this last night. And this is a different piece than the other two. I do think there's a lot of aspect of memory, some nostalgia and melancholy in the other pieces. But by the time we get to this last piece in the program, it feels very much in the here and now to me. The stage is brighter. The dancers are alive in a sort of different sense. There's a real sense of, to me, and maybe I'm putting a little too much into this, but again, it's been a while since I gave these talks. I'm taking a little liberty here. Um, I feel like there's a sense of striving in this choreography. What do I mean by that? Just in the way that dancers move their bodies. Like there's a sense of trying to achieve something or of moving forward. There's some real literal movements that give me that feel. Steps forward, reaching forward, and so forth. But there's just, to me, in the combination of the sound quality of the music and the movement, a sense of striving in this ballet and of moving forward. And for me, that really roots things in the present time. And I like this trajectory of the program. 
with the uh, Dove piece first and the Lang, followed by Alonzo King's work, which is, uh, uh, of course, new to us and, of course, just new to, to the dance world. It's just two years old. Um, we've got eight dancers and, again, performing in different sort of combinations. That's a little bit of the theme of the night. I guess I'd call all these ballets ensemble ballets. Um, they don't really have that hierarchy that we have in older works. Everyone's the leading dancer, and we see them in different combinations, and that's the case here definitely as well. But there's often, um, there are often moments where the entire group is on stage. They might not all be dancing at one time. They might be focused on that one dancer who's dancing or working very hard, and that really also, I think, focuses our attention and maybe gives me that sense of the striving or the effort in the, uh, that I see in the choreography, and not a sort of negative effort, but some, a sense of sort of moving forward or able to sort of eat up space and use the energy that you have. And man, our dancers have, I think, have, a, have had a lot of bottled up energy over the last couple of years, and now, again, they have that opportunity to, to share that on stage and really vicariously as an audience we're able to participate in that. I think that's gonna feel really good. So, those are my comments on these three ballets. And uh, I'd love to answer any questions you have. We have time, and I'll try my best. Like I said, I'm a little out of the loop, but I've tried to keep up. Yes? You, you didn't mention who the dancers were in the second and the third. Right, right, okay. Let's get that open here on the QR code. I usually have this because I would have typed up the casting entries. Not anymore. Okay, so Jessica Lang's ballet has also has eight dancers. Uh, Christopher Dariano, now he's in the role, I believe, that was originally made on Jerome Tisserand. So Chris Dariano is in that spot. Elle Macy, Lucy M. Postelway, Dylan Wald, Lita Biasucci, Kyle Davis, who has a great solo, uh, Angelica Generosa, and Elizabeth Murphy. And Christina Siemens is the pianist there. So Christina plays the Lang, and Josh plays the King. In the Alonzo King, Cecilia Ailisu El Macy, Amanda Morgan, Miles Pirtle, Lucien Postelwaite, Leslie Rausch, James Kirby Rogers, again, who's new to us, and Dylan Wald. And there are some promotions too. If you saw, you may have seen an announcement or seen it in the program. El Macy's been promoted to principal. Yeah. And uh, yeah, very yeah. exciting. Sarah Gabrielle Ryan to soloist and uh, Miles Pirtle to soloist as well. Wonderful. So yeah, very exciting. Exciting for them, an exciting time. Again, the dancers have, time is really precious in a dance career. You know, it's a shorter career than a lot of us might have. And so having to take time out is hard. So again, a lot of excitement for those dancers, a lot of perseverance. Anybody else with a question? Yes, sir. I, I wondered why there wasn't a, a printout of who's dancing. That's a good question. I don't know that I have an absolute answer. It's why isn't there a printed casting insert? <clears throat> I think this time it's this whole period of sort of being locked down and not having everybody at work and budgets being reconfigured has has caused a lot of thought to be given to areas in which money might be able to be saved. And I think the fact that we go to restaurants now and often the menu is on the QR code may have opened the door to, to the possibility that, well, perhaps, perhaps we don't need to print all those casting inserts. Perhaps we could have it on a code uh, that people could look at it. Then there's a the question of, well, what if you want to check it during the performance? And 
until you found it out because it's on the behind you but you're stopped. I'm not quite sure. So I think it's a little bit of a limbo period. So that's my best. <laughs> that's my best answer. So a little bit of a, a rethinking, a little bit of testing. So I think audience response and feedback will be key to deciding, well, what's, what moves forward? What makes for the best experience at the theater? What's helpful? What's not helpful? And so forth. Anybody? There is a post-performance tonight. And I can't remember who's doing it. And I'm so, oh, here it is. Here it is. James Kirby Rogers. Good, you get a chance to meet him. And Christopher Dariano. Now they do, they dance that second time through the dove piece, the duet for the two men. So you can come down here. I, here it was very well attended for rep one. So do come. They'll be here with Peter Hole. It's a great chance to ask questions and and give some feedback. Yes, please. Question, just on the role of the resident choreographer here, Alejandro's here, and this is happened in this pandemic. What sort of impact has that had on what you've been able to do as a company? Oh, that's a great question. So it's about Alejandro Cerruto, who is our resident choreographer for three years, and this is year two. It was sort of announced in. How did it go down? The beginning of 2020, it had been announced. We were just about to do 1,000 pieces, which was a really big work, huge work, and they were really working, working, working. And then we got shut down. We did a dress rehearsal, and then that was it. Um, I haven't had a lot of direct contact with Alejandro. I know that I think there's been a little bit of curtailment of his uh, time here, but not too much. I'm trying to think. We um, went ahead and acquired this, the solos for three men, Paco, Pepe, Pluto, which I love because I think one of the greatest strengths Alejandro has is wit. Uh, we don't see wit as often in choreographers today, which is fine, but when you do see it, it's unique, and I think it's great, and he's really got that. Um, and then, of course, we did the program of his work for Rep. 1, but none of it was new. I mean, the Thousand Pieces excerpt was, I guess, new to a uh, performing audience, but we had prepared it before. And I believe there is a new work, uh, there will be a new work made for the company in the third year of the residency. So I think there may have been a little uh, readjustment of what his different responsibilities would be here, but not too much. I know for each year there was sort of a set, this will happen, this will happen, You'll create this, we'll acquire this, and so forth. Yeah, but he was able to be here and rehearse uh, for the first rep, uh, and so uh, assisted by Ana Lopez, and uh, they were both here. So, so that was good. They've been able to still travel and be here. Yeah. yeah was there another question? Curiosity, why Beyond Ballet? Oh, that's a good question. I was wondering, too. Why is it beyond ballet? Because each of these ballets is done in someone's wearing point shoes, which is very ballet. Um, I, my rationale is that each of these pieces uses vo ballet vocabulary, but also uses movements that are outside what we'd consider the academic vocabulary of ballet. Sort of codified positions of the arms or so forth. There, there are elements of movement for the upper body or the legs and feet. That are that come from other dance traditions. So I think that's the beyond aspect. That's what I have, at least choreographically speaking. In the back, yes. Uh, 
Are there choreographers who have never been dancers? Very few. There must be some. I'm trying to think who there might be. No one's coming to mind at the moment. Um, just about everybody has been a dancer. One, just the practicality of it and the interest um, of doing it. A lot of dancers become interested in being choreographers because they have danced, because they've worked with other choreographers and so forth. There must be some instances where someone maybe hasn't been a professional dancer and choreographs. There are definitely people that program dance that haven't been dancers. Um, one of the most famous was Serge Diaghilev, who ran the Ballet Russe from 1909 to 1929. He was not a dancer, but he had a great eye for talent, uh, willing to take risks, and knew how to put people together. So, there must be some. I'm now going to keep my eye out. Report back. Yes, I will if I find someone. I will. You too, let me know. Uh, anybody else? We have another minute or so? Sure, please. Like my might reach the ceiling, but still like tight holds tight to the ceiling. Thank you. Yeah. Right. Okay. Good. So it's the stalactites that we will see in the uh, dove piece. They do give a great, uh, a real sense of space for sure. Well, I want to say it's so nice to be back and to discuss ballet, to be here with people who are excited to see it. I hope you enjoy the evening. Please feel welcome to come back. After the performance, it's not a long performance, and hear the Q&A with James and Christopher and Peter Bowl. And uh, have a wonderful time at the performance, and I will see you after the first of the year. No talks for Nutcracker, but do come support it if you can. Thank you.